Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Pilgrim's Progress, a study in the books of First and Second Peter. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. So glad that you're here with us today. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter in your New Testament. 1 Peter. And guys, can you believe it? We are concluding our study of 1 Peter today. We're going to actually study 2 Peter too. We're going to do that in the new year. But before we get to 2 Peter, we're actually going to do two whole series before we jump back into 2 Peter. So look forward to that. Next week, we're starting our Advent series. But for this week, we are finishing 2 Peter by looking at 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. So 1 Peter chapter 5, find that in your New Testament. If you use a Bible app, uh, you can just go right to 1 Peter, choose chapter 5. Use your table of contents. If you, if you like to find it, here's the, how the, the trick to finding 1 Peter. Go find Hebrews, the larger book in your New Testament, and then go two books to the right. Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. For the last several weeks, we've been studying through 1 Peter in our series called Pilgrim's Progress, in which we've been studying this great letter, which Peter wrote to Christians spread around through the Roman Empire during a great time of trials, suffering, and persecution. And he says in this dark backdrop, the hope of the gospel shines all the more clearly. So that's what we've been studying here in 1 Peter. Let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a good place to stop. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, truly to you be the dominion and power forever and ever. And Lord, in this place this morning, would you have that dominion over our lives, over our hearts, over our ears and our minds as we consider your word. Lord, please speak to us and give us receptivity to your word. Lord, we don't just want to be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. And we ask that by your word, you would transform us and that you would do that this morning as we open it up and study it together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine with me, if you would, if one day you look at your phone and you got a text from an unknown number and this text says, Nick, or or whatever your name is, you know, insert your name there. Uh, I know who you are. I know where you live. I know all about you and I'm coming to get you. 
That would be a little bit disheartening, right? Like if it said, hey, I've been studying you. I know your weaknesses, and I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you down, and I'm going to destroy you. Again, that would be a little bit disheartening. And so you would wonder, is this legit? Who is this person? How are they planning to take me down? And just imagine how valuable it would be if there was somebody who could tell you, yeah, this is legit, and here's who this person is, and here are the ways that they are going to try to take you down. The reason that would be so helpful to get a heads up, to get some get tipped off about what this person, this enemy, this adversary was planning to do to try to take you down is because then you would be able to prepare. You'd be able to do things to avoid those attacks. You would know the strategies. You would know who the enemy is and what the strategies are that they're planning to use against you. And that's essentially what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter warns us that there is an enemy of our souls, an enemy of our souls. He tells us who this enemy is, and he also tells us what are some of the strategies that this enemy likes to use to try to take you down. See, and along with that, he also tells us here are the ways that you can avoid falling into these traps, and here's how by the grace of God, as Mike pointed out, he calls him the God of all grace. In verse 8, Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful or vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First of all, he tells us that we have an adversary. There's someone gunning for you. There's someone looking for you to take you down like a, a shark with his eyes on you, bloodthirsty shark who wants to devour you. And our enemy, his main primary method of destruction to destroy us is deception. His main method of destruction is deception. Jesus said this about the devil. He said, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you think about it, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tried to deceive Eve by telling her lies. He told her lies about God, mistruths, untruths about God. He told her, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really have your best interest in mind. God is just trying to keep you down. He doesn't want you to be happy. And these were all lies. And what were they aimed at? They were aimed at getting Eve to do something through which she would destroy herself. She would bring destruction on herself. And this plan succeeded. See, here's the thing. Peter says that our enemy, the devil, he is a lion who roars. That's what he does. Now think about it, though. A roar might be scary. It might be loud. But a roar in and of itself can't hurt you, can it? It's just a roar. And that's interesting because, see, here's the thing about the devil, right? The devil can't actually do anything to you without God's permission. We talked about this last week. We talked about suffering and the will of God. So because the devil can't touch you without God's permission, one of his main strategies that he uses is that he'll try to manipulate you into hurting yourself through deception and lies. See, whereas he needs permission to harm you, you don't need anybody's permission to mess up your own life, do you? Yeah, you can just go out and do it right now if you want to. In the Garden of Eden, think about it. The serpent didn't hold down Eve and force her to take a bite of the apple, did he? No, he talked her into it. He talked her into it. He, he got her to do it. He got her to do something to hurt and harm and destroy herself. 
He couldn't destroy Eve, but he could talk her into destroying herself through lies and deceptions. He did it by appealing to her pride. He did it by stirring up anxiety and fear within her. He did it by feeding her a bunch of mistruths and and misconceptions about God. And guys, there are so many people in the world today, maybe even many of us, right, who believe things about God that are not true and that are, that are really decept- deceptions. They're, they're harmful. They are misconceptions and mistruths about God. Where do you think that comes from? Who do you think is out there spreading that? It's still the serpent. But again, all he can do is roar. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this incredible list of things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. On the cross, he forgave your sins, nailing the record of your wrongs along with him to the cross. And then he says this, Jesus also disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Those powers and authority he's referring to, they're the evil powers and authorities, right? This is demons, the devil. See, Satan has been defeated and disarmed. That's what it tells us there. He's a roaring lion, but he's a lion who's been defanged and declawed. He's got one tool, one weapon in his arsenal that he likes to use, and he's been using it for a long time, and that's his roar, his voice, You know, sometimes I hear people talk about Satan and evil forces as if there's like this tug of war going on, right, between God and and his side and the devil and his side, and it's pretty much like a tie, right? It's like tug of war, and it's 50-50. We don't know who's going to win. In fact, it kind of looks like the devil's going to win, so they'll say, you need to jump on, you know, God's side and start pulling on that rope so that God can win, because if you don't, the devil's probably going to win. Now that image of a tug of war and the idea that somehow Satan is God's counterpart or his equal, that's so incredibly far from what the Bible says about the truth of the matter. The devil isn't God's equal. He isn't God's counterpart. He's been defeated and disarmed. There's one weapon he's got left in his arsenal, and that's his roar. If he can't get to you directly, he'll roar at you and try to use deception in order to get you to destroy yourself. And here in the final section of this letter, Peter warns us about some of the key strategies that the devil uses to trap us and how to avoid falling into those traps. The title of today's message is Know Your Enemy. And Peter tells us about three traps. Number one, he talks about pride in the first six verses. Secondly, he'll talk about anxiety in verses seven through nine. Then he'll talk about prosperity in verse 10. So let's talk about pride. This is the one that takes up the majority of the chapter. Peter begins this final chapter, not by talking about pride directly, but by addressing those who were elders in the church. But you'll see how he ties this into the idea of pride. He says in the first part of verse 1, I exhort those among you who are elders. Remember, Peter's writing not just to one particular church, but to all of the Christians throughout the world, primarily in the Roman Empire. When it comes to knowing your enemy, it's important to know who your enemy is because then you also know who your enemy isn't. It's important to know who your enemy is because then you also know who your enemy isn't. And Peter says, look, your enemy is the devil, but your enemy isn't other people in the church. That's important to remember. See, we get into a lot of problems in a lot of areas of our lives when we forget who the real enemy is, what the real battle is that we're supposed to be engaged in and fighting. You know, husbands and wives, let me just remind you, your spouse is not your enemy. 
Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Beset Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. You know, young people, children, your parents are not your enemy. Your enemy, by the way, is not that other person in church who offended you or with whom you have a disagreement. You have a real enemy. Don't get sidetracked with fighting with people who are supposed to be on your same team. You know, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see a vivid example of this and what happens when infighting takes place. See, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, we read about Israel's first king. His name was King Saul. He was very popular. At the time that King Saul became king, the people were under attack from a nation called the Philistines. The Philistines were trying to take over and invade the nation of Israel. And so King Saul, you know, put together an army. They were fighting them, and they were successfully holding them off. Now, David became one of Saul's best fighters. In fact, he became one of his generals, leading troops to fight Philistine armies and against these, you know, onslaught of Philistine warriors. And so David, he's a general in Saul's army, and he's faithful to Saul. But as David won more and more battles, Saul became a little bit insecure. He, he began to feel threatened by David's increasing popularity, especially when he heard that the people who had formerly sung his praises were now singing a new song. The song went like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. See, they're still singing Saul's praises, but yet he becomes insecure because of the success of another person. And he begins to consider David his rival, even though David didn't consider Saul a rival. David was like, I'm, on, I'm with you, Saul, heart and soul. But David began to look with suspicion upon Saul and see him as his rival. And soon he saw him as his enemy. And pretty soon Saul had turned against David and he began a full-scale campaign to try to hunt David down and take him down and even kill him. And here's what he did in that campaign. David fled out into the desert. He was hiding in caves. And Saul took the whole force of the army of Israel and started chasing David, trying to find him and take him down and kill him. Now, why is that a bad idea? Because they're at war. They're at war. And they diverted the entire army to chasing somebody who was on their same side. And guess what happened? Now, neither David nor Saul are fighting the real enemy, the Philistines, anymore. And all their national resources are diverted, trying to go on this mission to hunt down a guy who's on their same side. And so the Philistines, what do they do? They just walk in and they take over almost the entire country of Israel with nobody, you know, opposing them. There's nobody to fight anymore. They're all busy fighting each other. 
And so, you see, the thing is this. If Saul would have just remembered that there was a real enemy that they were supposed to be fighting and who that enemy was... He wouldn't have been fighting David. He would have been locking arms together with David. He would have said, David, your success is my success. And let's lock arms. Let's fight this battle against our real enemy together. And they would have won. They would have been victorious. But instead, because Saul was chasing David, instead of fighting the Philistines, the Philistines took over the country. And in a cruel twist of irony, how does Saul die? He dies at the hands of the Philistines, the Philistines who he allowed to take over his country because he was distracted fighting against someone who was supposed to be on his same side. The Philistines walk in, and in a cruel twist of irony, they end up capturing Saul and his sons and executing them. It's something that would have never happened if Saul had been focused on the real enemy and the real battle rather than fighting against somebody who was on his same side. In your marriage, guys, the same thing will be true. In your family, the same thing will be true. As a church, the same thing will be true. Let's not make that mistake. Instead, you know what we got to do? We got to lock arms together and fight the good fight of faith together. Is that true, guys? Should we do that? Should we reach some people with the truth that sets us free? Should should we do some good in Jesus' name together? Should we take some ground for the gospel together? Locking arms? Let's be quick to forgive. Let's be dedicated to one another because we are on the same team with the same goals, with the same mission. See, Peter begins this by addressing those who are elders. He says, first of all, knowing who your enemy is also tells you who your enemy isn't. So let's talk about church, he says. He says this idea of elders, by the way. He addresses elders. The idea of elders comes from the Old Testament, especially if you look at the book of Exodus. You'll see that the way the people of God were structured and managed in the Old Testament is that there were elders chosen from among the people who had responsibility for caring for the people and serving their needs. And this is carried then into the New Testament where we're told, Paul tells his protégés, he says, appoint elders in every church. Appoint elders in every church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're actually given the qualifications for the character of an elder. But here's what Peter says about what an elder is to do. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. That's interesting. Did you know that actually every time the There's a list of disciples or a list of apostles in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. Peter is always listed first. Did you know that? Every single time, you can check it. Peter's always listed first. You could say that he had a primacy amongst the disciples. He was the first amongst the disciples and amongst the apostles, but he doesn't assert that. He rather says, hey guys, I'm an elder just like you. And he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, we know from the Gospels that Peter was not present at Jesus' crucifixion. Peter was not present at Jesus' crucifixion. So what's he saying when he says that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Let me remind you why Peter wasn't at the crucifixion, because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about after this as well. At the Last Supper, the same night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested, put on a mock trial, then beaten and finally crucified in the morning, that same night, the Last Supper, Jesus was there with his disciples and he told them at the Last Supper, this very night, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter spoke up, full of confidence, full of pride, full of hubris, and he says, Even if everyone else here turns their back on you, Jesus, I never will. 
right there in front of everybody, right? Like, you got to, I mean, I wonder what they were thinking about him, right? There he is in front of everybody being like, well, look, Jesus, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if all these other losers turn against you. I mean, honestly, I've never really trusted any of these guys, except for maybe Judas. He seems to really have his act together. That's why we let him be in charge of the money, right? And so, uh, you know, other than Judas, these other guys, they're all a bunch of losers. I wouldn't be surprised if they all turn their backs on you. But me, definitely not. I would never turn my back on you, right? There's so much pride, so much arrogance in this statement, so much hubris. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus replies and says, Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then what does Peter do? Rather than being like, okay, sorry. No, he doubles down and he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So what happens? Well, you probably know the story. Jesus was arrested. They took him and put him on trial. They accused him of blasphemy because he claimed that he, a man, was God come to earth. And during the trial, Peter was standing around warming himself at a fire nearby, trying to get as close as he could without being found out because they just arrested Jesus. Who do you think they're going to arrest next? His followers as well. And some people there at the fire, they recognize Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. And right there, Peter denies Jesus three times denies that he's ever known him or ever met him in his life and then what does he do he runs away so there's Jesus being crucified being flogged and where's Peter nowhere to be found he's run away he's not there so what does this mean here in verse 1 where Peter says that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed? Well, understand, he's not saying that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion or Jesus' sufferings, his passion. Rather, what he's talking about is the sufferings that Christians endure for the sake of following Jesus. In the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 13, Peter said that when we suffer in the name of Jesus, when we suffer for our faith as Christians, he called that sharing in Christ's suffering. So what is Peter saying here? Peter's leveling with them. He's saying, not only am I a fellow elder, he says, you know what else I am? I'm a fellow Christian. I'm also suffering. Remember, he's writing to suffering people, experiencing persecution. He's saying, guys, I too am experiencing the same persecution that you're going through. And I too share the same hope of the glory that awaits us, that God has in store for us. He goes, that's the same hope that gets me through as well. I'm one of you. And Peter's big exhortation comes next. He says, I'm one of you. And this is what I want to say to the elders. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Elder is the role. Shepherding is the action. Elder's the role. Shepherding is the action. The word shepherd, by the way, in Greek is the word pastor. The word pastor is straight from Greek. It literally just means shepherd. And the elders in the church are called to do this action, to shepherd God's people. Now, what does it mean to shepherd somebody? Well, think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd does really basically three things. They feed, they lead, and they protect. Feed, lead, and protect. So those who shepherd in the church are those who feed, lead, and protect those who are under their oversight. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, cool. Well, I'm not an elder, so I'm just going to check out right now and scroll on my phone, right? Well, here's what I want to tell you. There are people whom God has put under your oversight, whether they're children, whether they're siblings. I don't know who they are, but there are people whom God has put under your oversight. And I want to encourage you, shepherd those people. Feed them the word of God. Lead them in God's ways and protect them from error, false doctrine, things like we said, deception of the devil who wants to trick you and trap you into wrecking yourself, 
Notice what Peter said. Peter says next. He says, exercising oversight, oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So leaders in the church are not to rule with a heavy hand, right? A leader who goes around reminding you all the time that they're a leader, that's, that's really not a very good leader. You know, I love this quote from Margaret Thatcher. She says, being a leader is a lot like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are one, you probably aren't, right? So he says, don't do it uh, with a heavy hand. Don't be reminding people, coming down with a heavy hand. Hey, don't forget who's in charge around here, right? No, they're not to rule with a heavy hand, but they are to exercise oversight, By the way, the word oversight is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos, which you might have heard, the root of that is the word that comes into the the church, right? Episcopalian. It comes from this word episkopos, which means overseer. That's an interesting word because this word is believed to be a word which comes from the business community and the, in the Greek culture. The business community, it's a word that describes somebody who leads and runs a company. In our language today, we would call this person an executive, an executive. In, in other words, there are two words that describe people who lead in God's church and what they're to be like and what they're to do. Elder is a word that comes from the Greek culture. I'm sorry, the Jewish culture. And it speaks about maturity and wisdom. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road, and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. Thank you.